Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Bill Irwin, the current holder of the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Play. Just won that a few weeks ago. Bill, congratulations. Thank well, you he'll very. be holding that forever. <laughs> that, that, that becomes we part, don't take them back. becomes part of your permanent record, the Tony Award. Well, it'll sit on the piano at home and, <laughs> and gather dust, but, uh, but in great place of honor. Of course, for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. A very interesting uh, bio on you, Bill. Graduate of Oberlin College. You've been, uh, many things, an actor, a director, choreographer. And a clown, a, a graduate of the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Clowns College. We'll it get into that. Good. <laughs> good. It is one of my alma's mater. But first, we'll take this serious before we take the All right. Yeah, how does that prepare you for Edward Albee? <laughs> you know, Edward's one of the funniest writers you're ever going to uh, encounter, with a penchant for baggy pants in his own way, too. But I'm sure you'll get me to that subject as we go. Well, we're, we're there. Um <laughs> Given your career, which for so many years was clown and mime and works created on your own, and you were take you would take film roles periodically, but on stage you were really known for creating your own material, and as well as uh, a number of Beckett plays. Right. How did you come to Edward Albee? Because we have Virginia Woolf, and not so long before the Goat, uh, when you when you went into that on Broadway. How did that transition occur? Well, actors' transitions are always mysterious, no matter how much sense we try to make out of them or how much we try to make it sound like we planned something. It's, there's a lot of happenstance. There's a lot of sort of uh, mysterious and fortunate drift in our work. But the Samuel Beckett connection was important, as Edward has told me. He said, uh, well, I saw you, uh, heard you do Sam Beckett's work, and I... Anybody who can do Sam Beckett's work is interesting to me as an actor. So that was sort of, I guess, upon the radar screen. And uh, so uh, as a great gift from the blue heavens um, of uh, uh, beneficence, uh, I got a call saying, would you come in two and a half years ago when they were looking to extend the GOAT production and and find a new uh, pair to play uh, Martin and Stevie said, so would you come in and read for Edward Albee? And I had the foresight to say, no, not today. I'll come in tomorrow morning, but I'm not going to just stride in unprepared. Uh, and looked at the play a lot, read it in a sunny parking lot, I remember, in the west side. Read the play over and over and over again. And uh, did read the next day and then found myself doing The Goat with Sally Field. We came in, and the producers of The Goat did an interesting thing. They had uh, originated the production uh, with uh, Jeffrey Carlson, Stephen Rao, and Mercedes Rule, and Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman and, and Mercedes had played out the length of their contract and were going on to other things, so they wanted to bring uh, a new pair in to play those roles. And rather than do the normal thing, sort of playing one cast through a Sunday and then bringing the next two in on a Tuesday for a sort of seamless transition. They closed the production for a week. Uh, we rehearsed for three weeks, but uh, there was actually a hiatus in the production, and it really began anew. And that's a different way to do things, but a, a way that uh, was a great gift to Sally and I, because we then got to s- sort of st- start afresh, uh, start the production afresh, and had a little more time than 
many people get when they step into roles. And it was certainly a transition for both of you because mm. Sally, although a vastly experienced stay, uh, film and television actress, we'd not seen on stage. And for you, we certainly weren't used to seeing you do this length of dialogue right. on stage. Right, right. It was a gift to both of us, yeah. Sally, like any actor, um, actors we think of as, as film and TV actors because we – because their work is so memorable and it's sort of blazoned into our minds. Sally has done a lot of stage work, and she'll sit backstage and trade stories about the theater she worked in Florida where you had to stop the dialogue when it rained because the sound on the roof was so loud. You had to mm-hmm. sort of wait till that storm blow through, blew through. She's put her time in uh, on the stage, as has Kathleen Turner. You know, a lot of people stand outside in the theater and say, Kathleen, we... We just think of you as a movie star. I didn't know you did stage. And, of course, she's done. Well, those of us in New York, certainly we have seen Kathleen. It was Sally Field's first time here in New York. Here in New York, yes. But let's let's move beyond the goat now. Ah. And so you you tackled and wrestled to the ground and succeeded with a 90 to 100 minute Albee play. Yes. So then they call you and say, well, do you want to double that? (laughs) I wish it were quite that simple. Yeah, they said, uh, uh, we'd like you to read the play with Kathleen and some other actors. Uh, and I think that Edward had over the years and was even during the last year or so l- putting together groups of actors to read the play. And it's it's typical of Edward Albeland. You don't come by and read a couple of scenes as sort of an audition. You sit down and tell the whole story, live the whole journey. So we sat down in Anthony Page's loft. The director director, of the current production. Exactly. Our estimable and stealthy director. And uh, read the whole play. And fortunately, David Harbour, who was on stage with us now uh, as Nick, was part of that reading because a lot of the chemistry in the Virginia Woolf piece is between George and Martha, those two roles. So a lot of it is between uh, Nick and Martha, and a lot of it is between George and Nick. So we had uh, three of us, of the four of us who were on stage with Virginia Woolf now, were at that reading back in June of '04, and uh, read the play. We thought it was a good sign when the director, or the, the producers didn't leave at intermission. They all said, well, we can only stay for one act. But they were still there at the end of at the beginning of Act Two, and still there at the end. And things move quickly with Edward often. So that afternoon, back in June of 04, that afternoon, we got a call from a sort of stricken, surprised-sounding agent saying, uh, they want you to do, you and Kathleen to do Virginia Woolf. They don't know when they're going to do it, but they're offering you right now. It's an offer. And uh, Kathleen and I, we had just met the previous day, so we talked on the phone a little bit carried our scripts around for the next few months and then went into rehearsal. And uh, here we are playing the show on Broadway after being you know, nominated, all four of us, David Harbour, Murray Enos, Kathleen and I being nominated for Tony's. And uh, my name was called on the big night. And so I'm a, as you said, John, I'm a Tony winner. And as you said, Howard, I will continue to be even, <laughs> even next season and seasons after. I'll have that forever. I will say I was greatly surprised and disappointed a few minutes after my big moment that Kathleen's name wasn't called. It just seemed to me that if my name was called, hers had to be, and that uh, that would be the course of things. It, it, and life is mysterious and never predictable, so it wasn't. But i got to say that she wrapped her arms around me right after 
uh, I walked back into that, uh, sort of dazed back into that huge auditorium with my little statue clutched in my fist, and she hadn't been called, and I had. She wrapped her arms around my neck and hugged about as hard as she ever does, which is considerably hard. <laughs> we should point out, of course, that you do play George, and she plays Martha exactly. in the show, which is a very intense uh, drama about a middle-aged couple. He, your, your role, George, is the son-in-law of the university president, right. the college president, and uh, not without some politics involved, of course. And a younger couple has come over for a, a social event after, after a big event that evening. It ends up to be an all-night drinking and shouting and arguing fest, I guess is the best way to describe it. That's a good, good description. Yes, thank you, John. It, it is often um, – because this play is such a sort of household name, uh, it's you tend to sometimes dispense with the, the givens, and they're very important. It's also very important, uh, as Edward is the first to say, to distinguish the play as it exists on stage from the famous and magnific- excuse me, magnificent film – uh, that Mike Nichols directed in 1967. Uh, they are very different pieces. Mike Nichols very shrewdly and I think brilliantly chose a certain take on it, as you have to do when you make a movie. And, it com- of course, they compacted the script. It's a full meal on stage, uh, Edward has written. In in those days, he wrote the full uh, two-hour and 40-minute play. Now he's uh, writing them much shorter with the goat, as you said, Howard. It's a 90-minute without intermission piece. Well, there's a there's a couple of perhaps conven- pieces of conventional wisdom about Virginia Woolf, and I think it's worth taking a minute to debunk them. It is a long play. Indeed, mm-hmm. some people have probably seen productions that have run well over three hours. It can if you, you don't attack it right. Yours yet. comes in under three. Yes. And the other expectation is that the play is three hours of assault. Right. And I think they miss a quality that I believe Edward always wants in it and this production certainly has in spades, which is humor. Humor? Yeah. Edward's one of the funniest writers you'll ever encounter anywhere. His his work is intrinsically funny. I defy you to read it like in the driest monotone and not have it evoke laughter. Uh, also, it's a it's a love story. It is about people who love each other and maybe can't quite tolerate each other, or who have uh, festered their love uh, and and uh, have it built around a set of false illusions, which need either to be attacked or continue to be lived with, as do all of our sets of illusions. But yeah, if ever. I were to see the play, and I hope I'll see the play a lot in my life uh, and do the play a lot in my life. If ever I were to see two actors who weren't playing a George and a Martha who, did, who, did, who loved each other, if they were playing people who really did not care for each other, then I would think, well, yeah, maybe it ought to end after uh, 30 or 40 minutes. But it is a full meal, and it's that mysterious Edward Albee alchemy where you say four prosaic lines, and on, this, on the page you think, well, maybe one of those ought to be cut. It's kind of repetitious. You say four lines and you say something else and then suddenly there's a theatrical moment in the Longacre Theater. Uh, a sharp laugh or a deep sort of silence or every once in a while somebody going, oh, uh, some sort of apprehension, theatrical apprehension. Nobody quite knows how El- Edward makes that happen after a series of sort of, like I say, prosaic-seeming exchanges. But he does throughout the course of the... As you say, our run, our our, our 
telling of the story runs about two hours and 49 minutes, which we've been complimented. One of the greatest compliments people outside the theater will say, that didn't – I thought it was about an hour. I, I, even with two intermissions, I just had to get back there. And uh, my neighbor said, since this is XM radio, I can say – he said, you know, every time we came to intermission, I said, i got to go pee and find out what happens to these people because <laughs> there is – you know, in, in Edward's writing, there is a quality of – and I use this term in its sort of uh, – I hope I'm using it in precise sense, that quality of melodrama or uh, hyperdrama. It is – there's really a a set of um, cause and effect actions and you don't know as the curtain comes down at the end of each act what's going to happen. Well, it's it's oddly like an episode of 24 because it's (laughs) told in more or less real time. You are watching – you are watching several hours in the lives of these people and the play is really told in that time. Yes, there's a little elapse of time during each intermission. That's why the intermissions are there. It's not just an old-fashioned structure. Um, But at the end of the first act, by the time the audience comes back, interestingly, just about as much time as they're at intermission, which at the Longacre is, is very tight. It's, it's about a 13-minute intermission. Well, they want to keep it under three hours for those union rules too. Yes, they do and, and for any number of other reasons. But uh, uh, you feel a, a readiness when people – when we come back after uh, the intermission. They keep them tight and just about that much time has elapsed in the story too. So it has a, it has a real sort of – uh, Aristotelian unity in, in its way in the telling. And then as you say, Howard, yeah, it is real time during each act. You don't fade and come back a few minutes later. It is it is the story as it's lived up on, up on the stage. And we in the audience over this period of time see the evolution of the characters between one another. In other words, the young couple is just meeting the older couple, your couple, for the first time exactly. really. But also you and, and Martha are evolving in your relationship as well. We are, and as uh, Edward famously says, and as Anthony Page, our director, uh, very shrewdly kept reminding us, this is a night that starts like many others, but it goes to a place unlike any others. And, uh, you know, that's that's what a great play is. It's the time that thresholds are pushed through or slipped through or somehow broken through. Uh, and it happens in a, just a weirdly mysterious way in this play. We keep tracking. We kept come to track in rehearsal. Where is it that it turns a corner? You can't quite see any individual big, bold, dramatic turn. But by the end of each act, you have turned a big corner. Of course, in the third act, without giving away what the revelation is, George very cruelly re- uh, reveals something to Martha, and it's devastating. It is, and and John here, I have to step in and, and do my actor's job. It's my job to see the whole world as George. So I don't see it as cruelty. And and interestingly, I got a, a note when we were up previewing the play in Boston from a very nice man who had done an interview on NPR. And he said, well, I saw the piece. And he said wonderful things about me as an actor, which, of course, swelled my chest with pride. But as I read the note on, he said, I just don't understand how the very nice man that I interviewed – I can't reconcile him with this despicable character, George. Yeah, the, very, the very nice Bill Irwin. The very nice Bill Irwin, George. excuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. there was this despicable character, George. And I stopped reading the note. And, of course, he had said wonderful things about me, but I, it stuck in my throat. It almost hurt because I don't think of George as despicable. I think of him as a, a man of con- complicated strengths and weaknesses who's in an almost intolerable situation, but who, as Edward often says, may have saved the chance for George and Martha to continue onward together. 
and so maybe he did the kindest thing. How, how, how do you see how do you see Martha and how do you see that relationship? They've been married for a number of years, right? And obviously they've got a drinking problem, but right. they've got personal problems between them. But they right. still love each other. They do love each other, and in fact, perhaps can't function without each other. It's interesting, you know. There are lots of acidic exchanges which each of the characters enjoys, obviously. You can feel it. And as you play it, that was an actor. You can feel the audience recognizing that kind of acidity between two people where they're getting at each other, but they're also enjoying each other's banter. And interestingly, Edward is so good, he shows you a couple times where both George and Martha try to bounce off the younger couple and they don't get the same response. And you can see their deflation well, it's so a game they've played with each other, exactly. you sense, for years and years and years. And exactly. they brought in some new playmates who aren't necessarily up to the challenge. Maybe not up to the game. Exactly. Well, the uh, new playmates haven't been told about the game. Well, yes, they, to they be really fair to them. in on the game. To be <laughs> fair to them, they're not in on the game. And, and they may not choose to play that kind of game. But the fascinating thing is you can feel the characters' need for each other. Whenever Martha isn't on stage, if you look at the text, George is forever saying, where's my little yum-yum? Where's Martha? Oh, here she comes. Whoa, what animal sounds, forest sounds, excuse me. He's almost anxious. Well, he is anxious and he, to see her again anytime she's not on stage. And then the two of them trigger each other's pain in ways that they can't quite tolerate when they're together. It, it's, it's a fascinating story. And also what's interesting is at um, the beginning of the, of the show, George seems to me, at least in the audience, kind of wimpy, kind of a milk toast yes. and all that. And she... Martha seems the domineering force. By the end of the show, quite a different opinion of George. Well, in some early press conferences, those, those kinds you have to have during rehearsal when you're absolutely terror-stricken. You think, we need every minute in this room to see if we can have a chance at even knowing these words. But uh, we met with press down in the rehearsal room in the you know, snowy January of this past winter. And one woman said, uh, well... We, uh, George is a weak character, isn't he? And, of course, everybody's head swung to me. I had to answer that. And all I could find myself saying was, uh, he's the last man standing. He is weak and strong, as we all are. And at the end, he's galvanized his strength. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, like uh, stick around for Act 3. <laughs> you know? If you leave after Act 2, you're not going to see the real George. You will not have seen the whole story of George. Right, it's true. Right. When you have those press conferences early on, you're often asked to say, you know, how are you approaching things? How's it going to work? And you don't want to say. But I'm certainly curious as a performer who has is so expressive physically and has done such extraordinary physical work, the experience of going into such a text-based piece of theater, how did you approach that and did you have to tamp down some of your own <laughs> – expressiveness physically in order to inhabit this character? Actually, no, because I had to work a lot on learning a lot of text and a lot of words. But again, Samuel Beckett uh, is a writer who just uh, I was gravitationally pulled toward a long time ago and, and complex and crucial text got to be a habit of mind in working with, with Beckett. With Edward... The the words are great fun and the characters are enjoying them for the most part. So uh, learning words is not as hard as learning, say, Shaw, where I would find that a tougher memorization process. I've never done Shaw, but I would find it harder. Well, 
as you indicated at the beginning, you've been a clown, a mime, uh, someone who doesn't use words, he uses actions and physical humor. Now here you are, it's all words with physical as well. How do you make that transition from just being a clown, a mime, into being a serious actor who's just very wordy, let's say? It's a good, good question, and I'm never sure I have the right answer, but I, I will say this. We're all storytellers. Uh-huh. When you walk out, as uh, David Shiner and I used to do in a show called Fool Moon, and uh, it was a two-hour show, no spoken words except uh, some of the lyrics that the Red Clay Ramblers sang on stage. Uh, so we had a, a language problem. We had a lot of storytelling to do. And people would say, isn't it hard without words? And we would often say, it's actually easier without words because you don't have to stop for laughter. You know, you tell the story, you drop your hat, you twirl your hat, whatever you do, uh, you, you look to another character, and the audience reacts... When you're doing a dialogue piece, as we are now with Virginia Woolf, you have to wait for that laughter to come down so you can say the next thing. You don't have to when you're doing physical language purely. Interesting. But it's still language. And George actually is a very physical character, even though he does a lot of sitting and he's called Paunchy by his wife. And he's a lot of uh, the physical language of the play is his uh, contemplating this much younger, stronger, beefier, young guy. Uh, and feeling himself in relationship as in relation to that, as we all do uh, as middle aged men, but it is a physical story to tell the the story of the way his chest sits in relation to his shoulders, the way physical prowess is not going to be his power, and he 's always known that, so he has to invest anything anything uh, angry or celebratory, anything he has to say he has to invest into spoken language, and but you need to see that. The audience needs to see that that's his only hope. So with that explanation, let's go back to those early days. <laughs> oh, God, How does don't someone, make me go back to those early days, you know, Howard. Well, you know, we all hear about running away and joining the circus, but, but very few of us run away and join clown college. And just how did you start? And why what did was, you start that? Why? <laughs> you know, uh, physical language always spoke to me, grabbed me. As a kid, I have these um, memories of early television images, Gleason and Carney, Phil Silvers. And sometimes I can remember the things they said, but often it's more the the structure of a comic idea or a physical take that, that lives in my memory. Or I think it does. As Walter Kerr often says in his book, you know, we have these films playing in our heads and we go back and watch the actual films and they're often very different. But that doesn't mean that they're not – that our memories of it is not a driving force. So I often remember – like Jack Benny, the famous, uh, all right, buddy, your money or your life. Well, I remember watching TV as a kid and there was like a three-minute laugh, which you wouldn't do on TV now, but just a three-minute laugh with Benny deciding which was more important, his money or his life. And for those who may not be familiar, too young, a deadpan expression on the man's face as he's thinking about it. Right. Jack Benny famously being so in love with his money that he wasn't sure his life was more valuable. So uh, those kinds of images and those kinds of clown ideas drove me. And then... You know, you always feel as an actor where your greatest individual, individuality and power might lie. I mean, I stood in line as a, an undergraduate at UCLA between, behind hundreds of young actors, all of whom are going to go up and 
read uh, for this scene, and I... All of whom want to grow up and do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Well, or uh, whatever they may want to do. Yeah, 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 right. Or they may want to have a TV series and actually make a living. But but, uh, I knew that uh, there were certain physical things. And, you know, Howard, I said I'd never done Shaw, but in fact, at UCLA as a freshman, (laughs) I did Shaw. So so let's be clear. You're mentioning UCLA. You're a graduate of Oberlin, Clown College... The theater ensemble Kraken, is that how it's pronounced? Kraken. Kraken. And then the Pickle Family Circus. Was it Was it a journey from experimental theater into clowning? Had you done – how did it travel? You know, these things often run much more parallel uh, than we realize they do in our lives. And yes, I was working – let me see if I can count up all the alma maters. I started at UCLA as a – theater student, volatile uh, Vietnam War years, and we were doing the basic musical and the Shaw play, but then we were also doing um, colloquia and anti-war pieces uh, on our own time, and the school was on strike during some of those years. I transferred then to California Institute of the Arts in its first years, in its first incarnation, and because Herbert Blau, who was running the theater school there, left there and went to Oberlin, some of us transferred to Oberlin College. So I went to many colleges, uh, after which Clown College was my sort of graduate work. And uh, so while at Oberlin College, we're doing a sort of Grotowskian uh, avant-garde uh, theater sort of hermetically sealed and for a few people and designed, written by a few people and played in front of a few people. At the same time, I would go to the library and look through history of books on the history of clowning because it was a, an intense, popular form. And uh, I think I, in some ways I was rebelling against that sort of uh, elitism of the, of the avant-garde theater. So I went right from... Uh, working with Herbert's, Herbert Blau's company, Kraken, to Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Clown College, practiced tripping on the Rin curb and uh, you know, f- seeming to fall off an elephant, the old uh, false mounting on an elephant. Uh, the gags that were... It's fun to sort of lay them beside each other, but they're actually, for a performer, they had much more in common than you might, than you might imagine. They were, you were looking for a physical way to speak to an audience. Then how did you break the news to your family that you wanted to be a clown? And what was the reaction? They were very patient <laughs> and they're very supportive. Uh, in my unforgettable, completely dreamlike but unforgettable moment when I was called up uh, Radio City a couple of weeks ago and was handed that statuette, uh, the, the Tony statuette. By the way, one of the great thrills that it was Don Cheadle who was presenting in my category. Mm-hmm. So I shook Don Cheadle's hand. And uh, talked to him for a moment backstage. But as I said, I have a family who loves me and supports me and whom I love. And I meant my wife and my son, Mm -hmm. but I also meant uh, my parents who didn't show me at least a batted eyelash when I said, "Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to clown college now. Well, speaking of wife, I was at the the Tony's in the press room. Uh And at the moment you were making your acceptance speech – Something else was going on in the room. I did not hear your acceptance speech. But my wife, who was watching at home on television, said, be sure to tell Bill Irwin his was the best acceptance speech of the evening. <laughs> what She's did you say? <laughs> well, all I can remember, because it's a little dreamlike, I look forward to seeing a, a, a video 
or recast if if uh, if, if there is such a thing. Uh, all I can remember is deciding in thinking about the possibility of my name being called that I didn't want to name any individual name because then I'd not do honor to all names. So I was going to try to um, talk about uh, what I owed to whom without naming names. And as the evening went on, with greatest respect to CBS and their time needs, I was determined they weren't going to start that music on me either because that is, it's, I, I understand the need, but it is a sad thing when people uh, have that music played on them is, is a sort of a warning and then the volume swells and that means get off the stage quick. So I just tried to uh, compress my uh, the blessings that I felt I had in my life and uh, talked about uh, the thanks that I had for people without uh, without naming any names. It was actually, actually your second Tony Award. You won another Tony in 1999, a special Tony for the show you did with David Shiner, Full Moon. That's right, to the production, to the Full Moon production, right, right. yes, yes. And so uh, there are actually two Tonys uh, in our living room. And it, uh, because people vote on the Tony Awards who make theater and love theater, and I think, as far as I can remember, that was also a phrase of my uh, speech on that night or my, my thanks on that night. This is an honor voted to a few people each year by people who make theater and love theater. It That means a great deal. I mean, uh, w- when people spend their lives in this bizarre undertaking, those whom they choose to uh, honor for a moment, uh, that means a lot. Well, as you talk about making theater, I realize you're one of the few people I've ever had the opportunity to talk to who can be said to have been part of a particular theater movement. You were... <laughs> Whether intentionally or not, you were one of the four, the foremost practitioners of what in the eighties was called new vaudeville. Yes, and, it was. And your work really was an emblem of what that could be. Was that conscious? At what point did you realize you were part of a movement? Well, the interesting thing is, most of us who uh, uh, fall under that label umbrella chafe under it. Interesting. Why? Well, I think because it, uh, it's a very handy label and I've found myself using it even at the same time I argue against it. But um, it was a coinage by people whose job it was to write about theater. And so it, it made sense as a coinage. But to be called a new something I think sometimes makes people feel that they're or, or carries the implication that you're uh, imitating something prior or uh, to be called a new vaudevillian, a lot of us would get together and say, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? We didn't turn down the jobs that uh, came our way uh, under its uh, under its aegis, but uh, we would often argue amongst ourselves, well, what does that mean? The thing that I think people who get called or got called new vaudevillians did have in common, clearly, was a desire to make our own thing and the uh, speaking of the word chafing sometimes the chafing under the system by which you get on stage and work in front of audiences i mentioned a few minutes ago just in ruminating how we would stand in long lines at ucla as uh, especially as freshmen to go up and read four lines for the directors who were directing that season's plays and I think a lot of people standing in those lines, and it happens daily because that's part of an actor's life now, uh, every moment. A lot of an energy comes out of uh, c- comes 
out of the need to go and f- impress somebody for to be chosen for the chance to go and do and maybe be part of a thing when in fact if you create your own material a lot of stand-ups i know are actors who just didn't really care for auditioning you create your own material you own your own means of production like we used to say in the 60s and 70s uh, imitating the marxists uh, you you're the one who decides what story to tell to an audience and of course if you work in the street it's a perfect laboratory situation you are the one who decide you played a nine crowds an hour uh, as a, a street mime as a street mime or I used to do a, a fire eating act uh-huh. and we used to do some brick breaking acts we would really choose almost any old vaudeville shtick as a pretext for something that you build a comic monologue around uh-huh. I remember as Carnot the Magnificent I would do a fire eating act and thankfully I passed on from that and didn't keep poisoning myself with uh, with naphtha and kerosene uh, that long but it made a great it made a great uh, crowd catching image and then you could uh, i mean i had really uh, hopeless hokey lines about uh, i will proceed now to my f- flaming climax i mean conclusion you, you, all the old lines but you get to try things in front of audience after audience and audiences on the street either stay or walk away so you're it's like building time in the cockpit, you know, when you need to uh, choose somebody to fly the B-2 bomber. Uh, you choose an old grizzled pilot who's been behind the stick of a airplanes all his life. So when you need to put somebody in a play of Edward Albee's, you're actually choosing amongst people who've spent a lot of time in feeling in front of audiences and feeling how you tell a story to them without uh, without playing down or without without devaluing their intelligence. Well, you're, but, talk, you're talking about uh, being street mime and doing this yeah. routine for the street audiences, talking about doing readings for producers of shows. How does a clown audition and do, do these experiences help you now in a Broadway sense, a theatrical sense, when you do a reading? Are you able to draw upon your past auditions, shall we say, your past uh, performances? Yeah. I think anytime you're in front of an audience or showing – a director, how you would be in front of an audience. You're drawing on every minute you've ever spent in front of audiences, and you're showing that you have the well, the savvy and the intelligence is one word, but also just the amount of experience to play, to tell a story, and to be the old term is public privacy. You can be private in front of a thousand, twelve hundred people. And it has the clarity that those 1,200 people need to see the story, but it also has the privacy that the story calls for. So it isn't as far-fetched as it might first seem to see a mime and a, st- and a clown on one level and a Tony-winning serious actor on another level because it's all storytelling. It's all storytelling. I think right. so. I think so. Yeah. Last year, you had a unique opportunity at the Signature Theater Company here in New York, which, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a company that each year – focuses on the work of a single playwright. And last season, you were that artist. And there are many who said, hmm, Mm. Bill Irwin, he's not necessarily a playwright. And indeed, you had the opportunity in that season to go back and revisit what for many was your breakthrough piece, The Regard of Flight. Now, as I sit here talking about this, I'm thinking, this is insane. I'm talking about physical humor on the radio and we're asking (laughs) you to talk about how you do what you do. And part of the whole brilliance of The Regard of Flight is you're poking fun at efforts to intellectualize what it is you do. 
That said, <laughs> what was the experience of going back to a piece that you had done extensively for many years that was your breakthrough for so many and, and revisiting it so many years later? Well, it was a great pleasure, A, to reunite with Doug Skinner and Michael O'Connor and Nancy Harrington, who is does not appear on stage or never has appeared on stage with us, but is a, is a sort of conceptual voice in uh, all that chunk of, of work that came out of a chunk of time we spent together. Um, Doug Skinner, a brilliant performer at the piano and a dry deadpan humorist and a ventriloquist and a lot of other things too. Michael O'Connor, uh, a guy, an actor I've known for as long as I've known anybody just about, uh, went to theater school together years and years ago. And he portrayed a character who begins in the audience and, and, and asks questions. during. It's like every actor's nightmare. So what if somebody raises his hand and asks a question in the middle of a play? And uh, so it was a great joy to go back and look at that piece. We saw many things, one of which was it really is a young person's piece. And I hope we did it some justice. A young person for the audience or a young person for the performer? It's, it's built on a lot of the mechanism or dramatic mechanisms, comic mechanisms that silent film characters or silent film the, the silent movies of the 20s are built on, and that's a young guy's aspiration. So I hope we did it a kind of justice to revisit it at the signature. But it's not a piece uh, – and it's not just that our knees are old and we don't fall down. Well, we can still fall down. Can we get up again uh, is the question with old clowns. Uh, it's, it's not just a matter of can we still do it physically, but do the jokes work as well like people often used to say about uh, Chaplin, well, why didn't he keep doing silent films? Or why didn't he... You know, a lot of the characterizations that Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd, and and the regard of flight, a lot of those ideas we carried in, have to do with being youthful and aspiring, wanting to win the job, get the girl, make your mark on life. It's not a middle-aged man's territory. So the great joy, to answer your question... Howard, was it? Uh, we did a con- slightly compacted version of the Regard of Flight. We revisited it. Then we followed it that after an intermission with a companion piece called "Still in the Same Regard," and that was sort of a rumination on middle-aged guys' life, looking back at those times, and of course uh, encountering computer, digital culture, and uh, that we had some. The piece was never quite finished because we were under such time pressure, but we had some good jokes about computer culture and life with computer. You mentioned Jackie Gleason before, Art Carney, yeah. Jack Benny, Charlie Chaplin just now. In your top four or five comics of all time, and I use the word comics advisedly, people who were known for the comic gift, let's say, who would you put at the top, the top couple, top three or four or five? Buster Keaton. Mm-hmm. Buster Keaton was one of the greatest actors also one of the greatest acrobats in a pure acrobatic uh-huh. sense and then one of the most one of the greatest applied acrobats where you could apply his acrobatics to storytelling he was to get back to that word john he was one of the greatest storytellers one of the striking things about keaton uh, and i'm a great proselytizer so i'm always pressing keaton dvds on people and uh, is that he told stories in silent film 
uh, in the silent film realm uh, where you absolutely thought you were hearing dialogue or you were getting conversation, you were getting ideas as clearly, maybe even more clearly, as if people were talking. Then later he made a few talkies and because time had passed him by, he was older, uh, he had been through uh, bouts with alcoholism uh, and because his voice was a sort of a flat, low voice, he wasn't the same potency of storytelling. He wasn't the same potent storyteller with a voice that he was without a voice. But fortunately, we have from the 20s that dozen or two dozen, if you count the shorts and the features, films he made. You know, it was like Toscanini to the Italians or uh, we have in our culture, I think we have baseball, jazz music and silent film comedy. Those are some mm. treasures of our crown, cultural crown, crown jewels. And fortunately, we have those movies of Keaton's, and they are uh, they're true cultural treasures, and I would put him so at he, the top of the list. So he's number one. He's number one. Who are two and three? Well, Chaplin and Lloyd were were artists uh, of comparable stature. You, 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 have, you tend to have a sort of an emotional attachment or temperamental attachment to uh, somebody and I to Keaton. Uh, for a while, you know, Chaplin was so ascendant in people's minds that you felt you had to champion Keaton as his. Now we're past that to a certain extent, and I come to realize how great an artist Chaplin was, and I was sort of arguing against him for a while, thinking he he had maybe outshone Keaton. And Those guys are so great, they don't need our uh, arguing or champion for or against them. Uh, Chaplin's a great, great, again, storyteller. You think you are seeing a movie and getting a movie story Everybody is complex without language as – if not more as you do now when you go and see a very highly sophisticated uh, verbal and not only verbal but digitally composited film that you go pay a 9, 10, 12, 15 dollars for now. So those, those two guys are my great champions. But then uh, – uh, the guys on TV, uh, Gleason. There was some pow- there was some sort of magnetic field around mm-hmm. Gleason and Carney too. But I noticed no female comedians like Lucille Ball. No, well, no circus clowns like Emmett, Emmett Kelly. You know the circus. Uh, this is one of the things you face as a live performer. We, Kathleen and I, David and Mireille and I, we go out every night on the stage of uh, Virginia Woolf. And we have an intense experience with the thousand people there that night, but it doesn't live beyond that it's night. It's gone. It's gone. Yeah. Well, we hope it's not gone. But but, it, but your point is, we have Keaton and Chaplin on yeah. film, Gleason on DVD, Lucille yes. Ball on yes. DVD, but we don't have Emmett Kelly. Emmett Kelly is more a, a still photo image right. in our minds. And a great clown, Otto Griebling, who was uh, Emmett Kelly's contemporary in the Ringling Show, fantastic clown and performer for uh, you know thousands of people per show uh, but yeah we don't have the same record of them as we draw to a close and even on that theme you alluded to it earlier that uh, it gets harder to do the old material uh, but you've now opened in the past couple of years an extraordinary new window for yourself hope so <laughs> of work that hopefully people will look at you to do and give you opportunities. Are there things that you'd like to tackle now that you are Bill Irwin, serious actor? (laughs) Not too serious, I hope. Uh, Every actor carries around a list of plays that 
uh, he or she at least thinks they would like to do. Sometimes you you venture into them and you find you, you're not right for it or it isn't as strong a piece or it doesn't work well. Audiences have moved away from that kind of thing. Yes, Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot is one I want to do again and again. Which, of course, again. you've done as Lucky. As Lucky and even uh, on Seattle, at the Seattle Rep, I did the, the Dee character oh. and I would love to do that play, any any of the roles in that play for the rest of my life. The, we all carry a list of plays around. We, have, we carry the notion that we might still write something. There's a piece, the third of the signature theater pieces, Mr. Fox. Which you worked on for many years. Yes, and, and need to work on some more. I don't know where it should go, but it isn't finished yet, and that's something I hope to to do. And since we are closing, Howard, I have to say, uh, and I hope it won't sound like the standard thing to say, but commercial theater in New York is our great industry, our great blessing for those of us who live here and visit the city. It's also one of the least known territories in the world. So we don't know how long Virginia Woolf will play. It is uh, – the ads are saying final weeks because the summer months are um, – are hard for straight plays, and I urge anybody to come to see Edward Albee's really great classic play and this treatment of it and to com- so you can compare it to other versions you'll see in your life because it is a play like Hamlet or Othello uh, that will get done again and again and needs doing again and again. And on that note, Bill Irwin, the current holder of the Tony for Best Actor in a Play and the forever holder of the 2005 Tony, (laughs) part of your permanent record. Thanks, Bill, for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Bill. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.